And if you would, let's turn uh, or just bow your heads. We're going to open our time together this morning with Psalm 18. Just some words from Psalm 18 as David opens us in prayer. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. O God, today we take comfort and we take shelter under your protection. We thank you for shielding us by your truth and by advancing us by your glory. Lord, today as we consider some of the most challenging and difficult words that David ever penned. Help us to understand the real need, the real danger, and the real opportunity to share your truth with people who are on the edge of life and death, of great struggle and great calamity, and how you can help us to share with them how you can turn even our greatest trials into our greatest triumphs. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, probably about 10 years ago, I was sitting, uh, I was in our worship service back at my previous church in North Augusta, South Carolina. I was sitting in the service getting ready to hear one of my associate pastors preach. Now, you, I want you to create sort of a visual here. Um, in my previous church, instead of having the one pulpit, we had, we had a pulpit on one side and a lectern on the other, but both of them kind of had the box a little bit like what we have downstairs in the pulpit here. And uh, the one on the right, what, the right side was the lectern, the side on the left side was the pulpit. And they were a little bit bigger than what you see downstairs, but both of them had this kind of little box. And so my associate pastor, Carter uh, Robinson, was getting ready to preach. Um, and so he was in the preaching pulpit, and my other associate, Masaki Chiba, and I were sitting in the lectern side. We were just sitting there together in, in the box on that side. And as we were sitting there getting ready to preach, as we were leading the liturgy, I just, I just kind of noticed this guy who was sitting up in the balcony. And, you know, I, it, was a, it was not a small church, but it was small enough, and I'd been there long enough that I knew most of our people, and I knew most of the town, and so I, I, you know, somebody who was a real stranger was pretty easy to pick out, but this guy was, let me just say, he was not just a stranger, he was stranger than other people who were, he would come in. Uh, he was just one of those people who, uh, you know, bless the Lord, we are supposed to receive, but something was odd about him. First of all, he was sitting up in the balcony, and he was sitting on the end, but after about five minutes into the service, he moved up to the top of the balcony. And then he moved over to the middle about five minutes later. And then he went back to his original seat. It was like he just couldn't find a place to sit. And as I was looking at him, he had, he had tattoos up and down his arms. He had, you know, kind of a strange, disheveled haircut. Got up, and he came downstairs. And then he comes in, and he sits in the back row, the back pew on the pulpit side. About 
Five minutes later, he moves over to the other side, same place, and then he moves up about three or four, three more pews, and then finally he's kind of working his way, and he moves about five or six times, and he finally gets to, to about the fifth pew in front of the lectern where Masaki and I are preaching. Now, you know, this was not before the days of church shootings. You know, we were, we were nervous. This guy, like I said, he was a stranger. He, he was also stranger than most. And so as Carter was getting up to preach, we weren't sure what this guy had in mind. My ushers were looking at me for some kind of signal. Masaki and I were looking at him, but at the same time, I found out later in my conversation with my associate pastor, we were both kind of inventorying the, the contents of the pulpit. You know, y'all may, if you've never been up into a pulpit, there's always a little shelf and maybe some space for like a Bible. And all, so, so there was a Bible and there was, a, like a, there was a candlestick back there. There were a bunch of children's sermon props. Um, you know, there, were, there was a Bible stand. And both Masaki and I were kind of inventorying the contents of this pulpit to wonder, okay, what could we throw if necessary? You know, if this thing goes sideways, if he decides to do something, what can we do? You know, we can, you know, what, what is there to throw? There's the huge pulpit Bible. You know, that would, that would at least distract him. You know, you know, just hum a couple of the hymn books at him while people are getting away. I was actually looking and trying to figure out if I, could, if I could leap up onto the wall of the pulpit, hit the piano, and get to the fifth row to tackle him. I mean, we were, we were, both of us were seriously thinking through this worst case scenario. And we didn't know what was going to happen. And, and my, my heart rate was elevated. My, my blood pressure was going up. Luckily, Carter over there getting ready to preach, he didn't really realize what was going on. But Masaki and I, we were both wired. We were ready to go. And, and at some point, I just realized, like, Lord, I, I don't know what you've got. I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know what's, what you have in store for us. But, Lord, just please, please just calm me down. Comfort me. Just, just put, me, uh, you know, put me in a better place. You know, Lord, forgive me if I'm making a false judgment. All these sorts of things. But, Lord, just, just comfort me. Settle me down so that I can think clearly and so that I can be the shepherd that my flock needs me to be. And so, and, and so I just decided, I took my Bible and I said, I, I, just need to, I just need to turn to God's word for a second. And so what did I do? I do like what most people do when they're upset. I, I just opened my Bible to the middle and treated it like a Ouija board, assuming that wherever my finger fell, that's what God wanted me to hear. And so I, so I opened it up and I dropped my finger and the verse that I read was, Blessed be the, blessed be the Lord my rock who trained fingers for battle and I'm like no 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 wrong word that's not the one I want to hear this morning that's not the one I, I do not want to hear that I'm you know that you're prepping me for a fight here I want to know that everything's gonna be good where are the pinions of your mighty wings where's the the comfort I mean that's what I want to hear but it was funny because that's that's the first verse of the passage that we're gonna be exploring in depth this morning, Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Today we're going to go into, I think, one of the most interesting areas of David's life and especially his devotional life. And that is, the, that is we're going to examine deeply one of his prayers that David wrote that came out of his experience of battle, that came out of his experience as a soldier. Now, let me go ahead and make my confession that I, I've never been in the military. I'm not a soldier. Um, I, you know, I, I have never served my country in that way. But when I was growing up, I used to love to play war. We had this huge forest that was owned by the University of South Carolina across the street from my house in my neighborhood. And we would go out there 
and me and my buddies, we would go out there, we would take our, our toy guns or our toy swords or sticks, you know, we got older and less smart. We took our BB guns out there, I mean, all this kind of stuff, and we would build forts and we would, you know, we would make bombs out of stuff we found in the garage, all the stuff that just terrifies parents now, we used to do all the time. And we would go out there and we would just play war for hours, for days. I mean, we would, we would re refight World War II battles, Civil War battles, you know, the, the, last, the latest thing we saw on TV, middle, medieval battles. We would, we would reenact space battles, like, like when Star Wars came out and all that sort of thing. But we would go and we would just play war for hours. You know, and, and it was a lot of fun because you knew that, I mean, even though we would argue about who got shot or who got killed, and no, you didn't really get me, I was behind the tree, and yes, I did, da, da, and we would always argue about it. You know, we always knew that the worst it would get was that if you died, the worst thing that would happen is that you would have to count to 20 Mississippi, and then you would come back to life and you could rejoin the game. <laughs> you know, but that was all I knew about war. Everything I knew about war, I learned from reading or from movies or from or from books, you know, I didn't really even know much about war from talking to veterans because, you know, I guess I was too young and, you know, my older relatives or older friends were not, you know, telling me the real stories about the way war is. But, you know, of all those hundreds, possibly thousands of times, all those days, afternoons that I spent playing war, I remember that for all the hiding, for all the shooting, for all the building forts, in, those, in all those times I played war, I never once remember praying. You know, every veteran that I've ever talked to who's actually been in combat says that prayer is an important piece of your survival kit. You know, as they say, you know, there are no atheists in foxholes, or maybe there are not any atheists in foxholes for long. But I can, I can, of all those times that I played war out in the woods, I never remember praying that the game would end safely. I never remember praying that my friends would survive. I never ended up praying that I would make it home safely for supper. For, you, know, how, you know, how do real soldiers pray? What do they pray about when they pray? Well, today, we're going to talk about David the warrior. Because a great many of the Psalms, these entries in David's prayer journal, were written from the warrior's point of view. Now most people know David as the king. They know him as the poet, the psalmist. They know him perhaps as a lover, as this gentle soul, this boy with the lyre. But David, for most of his life, for all of his life, was a soldier. He was renowned as a warrior. He was a battle-hardened veteran. And not just as a commander or as a, an aristocrat sitting in the back lines. He was one who fought hand-to-hand -hand with other men who had to take life and who others were trying to take his life from him. He fought both duels and he commanded great armies against the enemies of God, both foreign and domestic. And even before we knew him, even before he is introduced to us, in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he already had a reputation as a warrior. If you go back to 1 Samuel 16, verse 18 says this. Now this is 
This is just after we've met David, right after he's been anointed by Samuel to be the future king of Israel. It turns out that after the Spirit of the Lord left Saul and came upon David, Saul, as we know from our studies last semester, went into this deep, deep depression. We see all the signs of mental illness and affliction. And he needed somebody to soothe his soul. He needed somebody to cheer him up. He needed somebody to help him get through this. And so he says to the men, to the men of his court, Go find me somebody who can play music for me, who can soothe my soul, who can play the lyre and, and quench this fire within me because I am, I am dying here. And listen to what one of his men said. One of his men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing. Oh, that's awesome. He can play the harp. But listen to what else he says. He says he's a man of valor, a man of war prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So apparently, even before we are introduced to David, somehow he has gotten a reputation, not just that he's had experience, but he has a reputation as a man of war, as someone who is capable of handling himself in battle with honor. Which is fascinating because we always hear about David and his bravery. Like I remember in Sunday school, you know, people would always say that when, when he went up against Goliath, that you know, he had faced, and he even says this, I've faced lions, I've faced bears, I've faced wild animals. You know, but it, what's fascinating is that here, if we are to believe what the Scripture is telling us, by that point, he had not only fought wild animals, he had also fought other people. He had also fought... In, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's in raids or defending his flock from thieves or bandits, he had also, you know, been in combat even by that point. So even at a very early age, he had experience. Now, the first of his great public battles, his most famous battle by far, has to be one of his earliest, and that is his battle against the giant Goliath. We read about that in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And there we know that David, you know, walked out into the valley um, because, and he, and he stood in the place of Saul and his armies because nobody on Saul's, in Saul's army, even the king himself, would go out and, and stand before this Goliath, this giant from Gath, and defend the honor of Israel and more importantly defend the honor of the Lord. Now what's fascinating to me again here is that I used to think, well, there's a certain naivete that goes with this, that David is trusting blindly in the Lord. He just, he doesn't know what he's getting into. But clearly, if we take chapter 16 seriously, he did know what he was getting into. And he still trusted God. To me, this makes it even more remarkable. And he wasn't going into this fight naively thinking, well, God can beat anybody, and if I can fight bears and I can fight lions, surely I can fight a giant. No, he knew the size of this opponent, opponent, because he'd not only seen this opponent, but he had seen other human opponents. And so here we know, I mean, to me, this shows that he even had greater faith in God to carry him through. But so David first gains his renown as the duelist of the giant, the one who, by God, was able to slay the giant Goliath. But David's personal renown as a, as a soldier, as a warrior, as a fighter, grew even from there. One of the most significant um, testimonies to his battle prowess, to his combat ability, comes in chapter, uh, chapter 18 of uh, 1 Samuel. Now, this is sort of a 
kind of an interesting PG-13 story in the Bible. Um, Saul and, excuse me, David and Saul's daughter, Michal, had fallen in love with each other. And Michal and Saul, excuse me, and David wanted to marry Michal. And so he asked for Michal's hand from Saul. Well, as David's reputation was rising, if you remember, Saul was giving, King Saul was getting more and more jealous. And so he thought to himself, well, I know how I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to give David an impossible feat that will probably get him killed and tell him, well, if you can do this impossible feat, then I'll give you my daughter's hand in marriage. And what was that impossible feat that he gave to him? Well, if you look at chapter, uh, if you look at chapter, 17, excuse me, chapter 18, beginning in verse 21, it says, Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And so he told David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And, his serv- and when his servants told David these words, listen to this, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Now I want, think about the confidence of that sentence. Saul says, I will give you my daughter as your bride, if you go out and you collect, four, if you collect 100 Philistine body parts, body parts that they are not going to give up willingly. <laughs> We're not talking about go pick up hair from the barber shop off the floor. This is, these are things they aren't going to give up willingly. And listen to David's bravado, his confidence. He's like, oh man, this is awesome. I get to marry McCall and all I have to do is go kill 100 Philistines. Well, what does he do? Verse 27 says that before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. Now, obviously, he went with his men. But how many, you know, how many men did he go with? He had to go, I mean, I'm thinking that he still killed 100 of these guys by himself. And the other 200, maybe the others... Whatever it is, this is a heroic act, that it sh- but it shows David's own courage and battle prowess. In other words, he, he was a fighter himself. He was not just a sit in the back and tell the troops what to do type of warrior. He was somebody who was willing to get his hands not just dirty, but bloody. So we see David was not, I mean, we see that he was a great warrior in his own right. He was also a great commander such that the command, he became the commander of Saul's armies. And the people shouted over him that Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. David fought the Philistines on Saul's behalf. He, taught, he fought the Gershonites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites on Saul's behalf. He also, while running and outlawed from Saul, continued to defend the people from these other Canaanite and Philistine harassment, uh, from, uh, defend them from from foreign harassment, even while he was fighting Saul, even while he was running from Saul, he was kind of trying to keep Saul at bay and still protecting the people, kind of like an outlaw, like a Robin Hood type. And so even in the early days when he was officially one of Saul's commanders and when he was an outlaw, he was still showing that he could command men in battle. And then finally, we see in the, the most of his life, he was a warrior king. David was, in fact, a warrior king. We know that the land of Israel was surrounded 
by many, many hostile tribes and nations. And it was up to David to defend the, the nation of Israel from all of these hostile nations. Now, it's, it is interesting that in the time that David was king, both the Egyptian empire and the great empires of the east were sort of in recession. They were not at the zenith of their power. And so that allowed David to really become the dominant power in that part of the world for quite some time. Not to say that the Egyptians or the great eastern empires were anything to sneeze at, but, but he and his armies were allowed to, they were allowed to, to grow and to, to practice and to flourish um, without a lot of huge opposition. And so, so David was really able to build up quite a military base. The Lord led him, he protected him, and gave him victory after victory. He invaded Moab, he invaded Syria. Um, you know, we, we see that, uh, that, he, that there were quite a few, uh, I mean, he, he met, took military adventures all over the area. And we see, um, if you want a good accounting of quite a few of the battles that he fought, or at least his early military record, look at 2 Samuel chapter 8, where it lists um, his, his wars against the Amalekites, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, all of these. We, you know, we remember the Philistines who were that, that group of Viking sea peoples who were a constant threat to the, to the Israelites. Um, he defeated them. They were, they were kind of his perennial nemesis throughout his reign. But another group that was, uh, that was also a problem for him were the Ammonites. Interesting thing about the story of the Ammonites, you know, when he fought the Ammonites, that whole war began kind of as a misunderstanding. Um, the king of Ammon died, and he was, uh, he was a tribute king to David, and so David sent a delegation to honor this fallen Ammonite king, but the, the son of the Ammonite king got some bad advice from his advisors and said, David has sent his delegation to insult you. And so the, Ammonite, the new Ammonite king had their beards shaven and had all of their garments cut off at the waist, and I'm not talking about the top. So they had to walk home naked from the waist down. They were absolutely humiliated, and that started a war with David. Now, David fought lots of these petty wars. Why is this one so important? Because that was the one that David decided to stay home. And what happened when David decided to stay home? That's when he discovered Bathsheba bathing on the roof. That was the one in which Uriah the Hittite was slain. And so, you see, that war was a ridiculous war that honestly never should have happened. But we see that, that David, you know, as I say, he, he fought, um, fought all over, you know, fought surrounding powers um, all the time. And he expanded the kingdom, both in defense and, uh, and to spread the influence of Israel. But he also, in addition to fighting foreign powers, he also fought against uh, domestic uprisings. Uh, one of those, of course, was the uprising of Sheba, which was one of the last of the domestic uprisings that he had to put down. And then, of course, the most tragic of which was the civil war that he fought with his own son, Absalom. Absalom, you'll remember, rose up against David because he did not think that David was worthy to be king. He thought he was not worthy to be king because David refused to take any strong action in the rape of Absalom's little sister Tamar 
by their stepbrother Amnon. And of course, after, after that, David, uh, after, after Absalom murdered Amnon, David refused to take seriously the discipline of Absalom. And just da through David's neglect, the people lost confidence in him, Absalom lost confidence in him, and usurped his authority even to the point of invading Jerusalem. David was, however, able to muster an army, and in the Battle of Ephraim, uh, his army lost 20,000 men, still defeated, um, still defeated the armies of Absalom. And of course, in that episode, Absalom was killed. He was trying to escape the battlefield, and his hair got tangled in a tree. And Joab, David's commanding general, was the one who, who executed him. He put three spears into his heart. Um, just a tragic, tragic episode. You know, just, you know, we think about, you know, war is a terrible thing, but civil war seems to be even that much, that much worse. Um, David's last war um, was a lot like his first war. His last war was against the Philistines. Again, these guys. Um, in this one, this seems to have been a long-planned, long, long-imagined uh, uh, long war led by the people of Gath. Who were the people of Gath? This was Goliath's family, you know, the Gittites. Um, they apparently, after all these years, wanted revenge. They wanted honor restored to their house. And so Ishibanob, the leader of the giants of Gath, who was himself a giant, he and his people led an army against David. And it's fascinating that David's first battle began with a giant, a Philistine giant, and his last battle ended with a Philistine giant. His career started with two giant battles. And it was his last battle because in the second engagement, David actually lost. He was not from his horse. He was about to be slain when the brother of Joab, one of his bodyguards, was able to intervene and save his life. But after that, Joab and the other officers of Israel said, you're not going into battle anymore. He had, he had crossed that point where, where he was no longer strong enough to, to maintain or to protect himself in battle. But that shows that even then, with, with the exception of a few instances, he was still fighting in the front line in the thick of battle throughout most of his military career. So and that just sort of gives you an overview. That's, that's kind of his resume to show you that, that David really did have the credibility, um, the validity to write prayers from a soldier's perspective and, and that we should pay attention to him. So on the one hand, we know David as this great king, as this great poet, as this this great leader of, of men, you know, even as this great lover. But, but we have to remember that David's life, most of his life, he was occupied as a soldier. He was a warrior. But in addition to being a great fighter, he was also a great prayer. He was a great poet and theologian. And unlike many of history's great soldiers, he wrote down many of his prayers. And these words have been preserved for us in the Psalms like 144 that we'll read today. 
So as we read Psalm 144 in just a moment, we need to remember that this is not just a pretty or an inspiring prayer or psalm full of interesting metaphors. This is a prayer based on a lifetime of experience, battle-forged experience. It was gained in the heat of war. You know, when we read the, the battle psalms of, of David, as I'll call them, we have to remember that these are the deep groanings and praise of a man who had actually seen death face to face, who had killed others with his own hands and whom others had tried to kill. They are words of need, they are words of thanksgiving, and they are words of confession in times of real temptation. And so I want us to look at this, and I want to just read Psalm 144, but not just as an exercise in poetry analysis or theology. I want us to think about it as kind of a guide, because if we think about Psalm 144 appropriately, this is, the this is a real prayer that a soldier prayed. David fought practically to the end of his life. And so unless he wrote this on his deathbed, David was writing this probably in the midst of some campaign where the arrows were still flying, where the blood was still flowing, where the houses were still burning and the men were still screaming. And so we have to remember these words come within that crucible. And so as we read this prayer, let's read this not simply as a psalm, but as a prayer an actual soldier prayed, and not just that, maybe even as a guide to how we should pray for our soldiers. Because right now, we have soldiers, many of you have sons, grandsons, friends, cousins, who are deployed around the world, whether they are locally deployed here in San Antonio or in places like Iraq or Afghanistan, um, wherever they may be, Europe, the South Pacific, wherever they may be, there are still soldiers, people that we know and love around the world. How do we pray for them? So let's take a look at Psalm 144. Let's read it. Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is the right hand of, of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a, hand, is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut from the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall, 
Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. So two questions we need to ask of this psalm. We need to ask them over and over again. For what did David pray? How did David pray? How did this soldier pray? And how should we use that as a model to pray for our soldiers? What should we pray for for them? Well, first, we should pray that our soldiers would commit their lives to God. First thing out of David's mouth. David opens his prayer with these words. Praise be to the Lord, my rock. From the first line of this psalm, he says, God is my commander. I put my trust in him. God, I turn it over to you. I put you, I put my life in your hands. It's interesting that this soldier's prayer begins with a statement of surrender. He's saying to God, I acknowledge that you are in control and in charge. And in this beautiful prayer, David wrote, he said, God, blessed be the Lord, my rock, my rock, you are my God. In Psalm 31, verses 1 and 5, he says this, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. First thing we ought to pray is that our soldiers would put themselves in God's hand, that they would absolutely and utterly trust in Him. And putting themselves in God's hands, that's a powerful image. And some of you have heard this story before, but one of my mentors was a a man named Dr. Ben Lacey Rose. He was a longtime pastor in the Southern Presbyterian Church in North Carolina. He was a professor at Union Seminary. He was was a uh, moderator of the General Assembly. And for 17 years before I got there, he was the supply preacher at Hebron Presbyterian Church. And I got to know Dr. Rose very well personally, but one of the stories that he told me in person and one that he published once was a story about when he was a chaplain in the 113th Mechanized Infantry Battalion of the Third Army in World War II. So he was traveling with Patton's army uh, into the Battle of the Bulge. And one of the things he wrote in his book is that one day he and others fell under German shelling, and he, with his, with his comrades, had to dive into one of those 18-inch hand-dug slip trenches, just a, a shelter from the storm. And he, he jumped in, um, he jumped into that trench, and there was a guy at his head, and there was a guy at his feet. And the, the shells were coming in, they were blowing up everything around them. And when the shelling stopped, Dr. Rose got up only to discover that both the man at his head and the man at his feet were dead. One killed by shrapnel, one possibly by the concussive force of the bomb. But of that day, he wrote this. He said, when the shelling stopped, after 10 or 12 rounds, I realized that I cupped my hand over my nose and my mouth to keep out the dirt and the grass. As I looked at my cupped hand, the thought occurred to me. I am in the palm of God's hand. So I said to God, Lord, I place myself in the palm of your hand. When you are ready to take me home, just fold your hand and take me to yourself. But until then, I'm in the palm of your hand. 
Dr. Rose wrote that many times since then when I've become afraid, I have cupped my hand and said, I'm in the palm of God's hand. Nothing can harm me until he says yes. And then he will fold his hand and he will draw me to himself. The first thing that we need to pray for our soldiers is that they will put themselves absolutely, unashamedly, 100% in God's hands. That they will surrender their will to him. No victory on the battlefield for our soldiers begins without a surrender. Second thing, we should pray not just for their strength, but for their skill. Look at the next verse, in that same verse. God is the one who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Now, I don't believe that David is praying, Lord, make me a better killer. Make me a more efficient and terrible machine of destruction. I think rather that he's praying that on the eve of battle, that God would help him to keep his wits about him. That he would remember all of that training, all of those skills that will help him to stay alive. You know, and I think that we should pray that our soldiers would remember their training, that they would remember to be watchful for mines and IEDs and for snipers. This is a very practical prayer. It's saying, use common sense. Watch one another's backs. Remember your training. Remember to put on your body armor. Remember to fasten it correctly. Remember to wear your helmet. Remember to clean your rifle. Remember all of those things that will keep you alive. Don't go into places that are not secure. Don't go unless you are prepared. Make sure that you are backing one another up. I mean, here's the truth. I mean, this is a very practical prayer. Help them to remember to keep their powder dry and their heads down. You know, I don't want any of my friends or loved ones to be in combat. But if they must, I want them to have the training and the composure and, yes, the skill to survive with both their bodies and their souls intact whether they are infantrymen or pilots, sailors, marines, whatever they may be. I pray that God will use their training to protect them. Third, that God would protect them themselves. We should pray for God's protection. David says this, verse 2, He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people's under me. We should pray for our soldiers' protection, not only for their bodies, but for their spirits as well. We should have no hesitation to pray that God's mercy and glory would be revealed by turning bullets, by making landmines fizzle, or by clouding the eyes who would, of those who would wait for them in ambush. If you are willing to pray that God would heal somebody's tumor or that he would restore strength to a leg, why wouldn't you pray? that he would blind a radar, or that he would turn a bullet, or make a missile malfunction and just die on the stand and just fizzle out. We should pray for those things. And we should pray that the God of all knowledge, the God of the universe, can make those things happen. And we should pray that God would actually intervene and protect. Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. 
We should pray that, that God would send his angels to our people. And you know what? It's okay. You can pray that he would send them to their soldiers too. If they're, if they're both surrounded by God's, by God's angels, maybe they can't get through them to fight and kill each other. Ask God to intervene. It's important that we pray for God's protection. One of my, um, one of my favorite people from my previous church, a previous church was a guy named Bill Herndon. Bill was a World War II veteran. He did not get, he got to Europe right after D-Day, so he was there enough to fight through the hedgerows and do a lot of, the, a lot of that fighting, but after about six months, he was captured by the Germans. <clears throat> and while he, was, while he was in their camp, the only thing he had to read was a single letter that they, that they actually delivered to him from his mother. And of course, there was family information and encouragement on the one side, and on the back side of that, uh, of that letter was Psalm 91. For six months, that letter was all he had to read, that the, the stuff about his family in Psalm 91. Here's what Psalm 91 says. By the way, Psalm 91 was read at every single one of his daughter's and granddaughter's weddings um, and at Bill's memorial service. Here's what Psalm 91 says. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, that is with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, those patrols that come out, nor the arrow that flies by day, those bullets that whiz past your ear, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. Bill, Bill had seen that in person. He had friends shot right next to him, killed in the heat of firefights. But it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, and no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Fourth, we should pray for God's intervention into the situation. And I'm not just talking about the personal protection this time. I'm talking about that God would intervene in the situation. Because there are some battles that the individual soldier cannot, cannot fight and that God must fight for us. David says this, bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. There's some, soldiers, there's some battles that our soldiers cannot fight, but many they cannot because many of these battles are political. Think about this. Every day, political leaders and commanders, both their own and of the enemy, make decisions that can either help or imperil our soldiers. 
That is why it is so important to pray, not only for our soldiers, but for our political leaders. To pray for their commanders. And not just for our leaders, but for their leaders. If one of their leaders is contemplating a massacre, we should pray that God will intervene, bow down the heavens, change his mind, change his heart. Why should we just pray for hours? Pray that God will bring that person, that terrorist cell leader, that army commander to his knees in humility before the living God, that he will change his heart, that he will change our hearts, and that he will make he will help them find a way out of this situation that does not involve the harm that could come to the people we love. David says, rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. We should be praying for the Ayatollahs in Iran. We should be praying for ISIS leaders because God can get to them when we cannot. He can turn their hearts. What if one day the commander of ISIS, what if one day the Ayatollah in, in Tehran just said, you know what, this isn't working. I don't know why, but I had a vision last night. Let's, just, let's, let's forget about this. Let's, let's just throw down our guns. Let's throw down our knives. Let's open up the prisons. And let's turn them all into frozen yogurt places. You know that's happening. Not the frozen yogurt part. But you know that's happening right now. One of the greatest movements of Christianity in the world is taking place in Iran. Um, let me just hit the rest of these. I don't know if I'm going to make it through all this. So let me, um, you know, we want God to intervene. Next, number five, this one's really important. <coughs> we should pray that God would give them humility before him. Look at uh, look at verse 3. O Lord, what is man that you regard him? <clears throat> or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Whenever we send our loved ones to war, we're sending them not only into a physical battle, but into a spiritual battle. And this battle is personal. Because I want you to think about this. When you put a rifle into a person's hand. When you put a young man or a young woman in the cockpit of a multi-million dollar aircraft armed to the teeth with missiles and bombs. When you put a person into the turret of a tank, you give them unspeakable power. We give them unspeakable power. And we set them up for a terrible temptation. <coughs> Excuse me. Suddenly, an ordinary man or a woman, a young man or a young woman, a husband or wife, a father or mother, has the power of life and death in their hands. They have the very power of judgment to be judge, jury, and executioner. And the question is this. Will this person be seduced by that power, or will they be humbled by it? Will they see that power, will they understand that power as one to give them the thrill of strength, or will they be given the, given the burden of responsibility with that power? 
Because while, while war, while violence is necessary in war, we never want it to corrupt the person and the people who must engage in that battle. Does that young man or woman feel the thrill of strength or the burden of responsibility? We want to pray that God would give them humility. We need to pray that not that God would humiliate our soldiers, but that God would humble our soldiers so that they understand the enormous responsibility they have. Sixth, we need to pray for a new attitude. In verse 9, David prays, I will sing a new song to you, O God. We should pray that this experience, as terrible as war can be, would ignite their personal faith in a deeper, renewed, transformed relationship with God through Jesus Christ. At the end of the Civil War, um, there was a prayer that was found folded in the pocket of a Confederate soldier. It said this, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked for health, that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity, that I might do better things. I asked for riches, that I might be happy. I was given poverty, that I might be wise. <clears throat> I asked for power, that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness, that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things, that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered, and I among men am most richly blessed. I just think that is absolutely beautiful. Finally, David says that if we're going to pray anything for our soldiers, we should pray for peace. Look at these last few lines of Psalm 144. The goal of the struggle is not our own glorification or aggrandizement, but peace. And this was David's vision of peace. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut from the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young. Suffering no mishap or failure and bearing, may, they, may there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. One of the greatest, or certainly oldest, poems of war in the history of our culture is the Iliad by Homer. That war is, of course, about the ancient war between Greece and Troy. And in that war... A super warrior named Achilles carried a special shield into battle, and it was special because it had a very interesting picture on the front of his shield. It didn't have like the didn't have the coat of arms of his city or a logo or anything like that. Instead, it had this picture. Homer says on his shield that there was a picture of two noble cities filled with mortal men. One city is at war, surrounded by what he says strife and havoc and violent death. The other city is filled with weddings and wedding feasts and courts that dispense only justice, surrounded by broad, rich plowland and harvesters, reaping ripe grain and a vineyard loaded with clusters of grapes. One side of the shield 
represents the world in which the warrior lives. The other represents the world for which the warrior longs. One is the life that he has, the other is the life that he wants. We can't doubt from reading which one Homer would prefer. He loved and longed for the city of peace. He stood with the ancient historian Herodotus who said that no one is so foolish as to prefer war to peace. In peace, children bury their fathers, while in war, fathers bury their children. One of my, one of my heroes, Robert E. Lee, once said, it is good that war is so terrible, lest we become too fond of it. One of David's most poignant war psalms, war prayers, the Psalm 3. He says in that poem, in that psalm, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O, o my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. Selah. Oh shoot, I forgot to read the first line. <laughs> A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. It wasn't just a, a psalm of war, a prayer. This is a psalm that he wrote, a prayer that he wrote while he was on the battlefield against his own little boy. War is personal. War is tragic. And David knew better perhaps than any other figure in the Bible save Jesus Christ himself the deep cost, the personal tragedy the pain of it. And that's why we can never take for granted the need to pray for those who put themselves in harm's way. I had lunch yesterday with um, Captain Chaplain Patrick Cobb, who is, if you all don't know, is a, um, he's not a member of this church technically because he's an EPC pastor, <coughs> but he grew up in this church and he's about to go to serve as, uh, as pastor of a church in, uh, in Washington State. But as we were sitting in, that, um, in the restaurant yesterday, I, I was just so touched at the number of people who walked by him and you know, just sincerely said, thank you for all you do. Thank you for your service. Thank you for just for, for all you do for our country. Then they, they would follow up and they would ask me and say, are you in the military too? I was like, no, no, no. He's, he's the one. But just to, just to be in that place where he was appreciated and where, where he was loved. And, you know, Patrick spends his whole life praying for soldiers. Um, and, you know, so I think about how, how are we praying for him? How are we praying for those, those men and women who every day are putting themselves at risk, whether they're here or abroad. Are we praying that God would use their experiences to shape and empower their character? Are we praying for their relationship with Christ, for their skill, for their protection? 
Are we praying that God would heal their wounds, both the ones that we can see and the ones we can't see? Are we praying for God's intervention, that he would turn the hearts of our enemies from aggression, that he would turn them away from violence and terror? And are we praying for peace so that one day all of our soldiers can come home and enjoy David? If we're not praying for them, I hope we will. Let's pray together. Lord, this poem is not just simply a collection of metaphors. It's not just a, a soaring oratory of images. It is, oh God, a heartfelt, literal prayer from one soldier to his God. In this, in this psalm, in this prayer, he reveals the deepest desires of his hearts. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us to use these, these verses, these lines, as a guide to praying for those we know who are serving as soldiers, whether they're on the front lines or stationed here in San Antonio. Lord, give us the thoughtfulness and the compassion and the courage to pray for them. We thank you, O Lord, for all of those in our congregation who have so wonderfully, dutifully, at times painfully, but courageously rendered their service to this country. Help us all to remember, O Lord, that, that victory, whether as a soldier or civilian, begins with surrender. Surrender to you. Now, Lord, take us from this place ready to serve you. In Jesus' name. Thank you very much.